I am going to be talking about a text that I know is part of your part of the Columbia undergraduate core, which is Confessions. And I'm going to be talking about a specific passage that is very difficult to interpret, and there's been historically there has been debate about what it could possibly mean. And in my book, I argued that I have found the meaning. <laughs> and to find the meaning, you really need to look at it through the lens of these three disciplines, so classical literature, history of philosophy, and history of Christian theology. So we're going to start by just reading through the passage of the Confessions. I gave you this handout from the Confessions. It's a little bit redundant, but the purpose of that is that one side contains the Latin of paragraphs 26 and 27 at the bottom, if you can read Latin. The other side gives you the fuller context of the passage, all in English. So maybe I can just get a volunteer to read paragraph 27, which starts with, nevertheless. This is the translation by Henry Chadwick in the Oxford Classics series. Do I have a volunteer? Shall I call on someone? <laughs> yes, go ahead. Thank you. Nevertheless, it was now putting a question very half-heartedly. For from that direction where I had set my face and towards which I was afraid to move, there appeared a dignified and chaste lady countenance, serene and cheerful without coquetry, enticing me in an honorable manner to come and not to hesitate. To receive and embrace me, she stretched out her pious, stretched out pious hands filled with numerous good examples for me to follow. There were large numbers of boys and girls, a multitude of all ages, young adults and grave widows and elderly virgins. And every one of them was continence herself, in no sense barren, but the, fruit of, the fruitful mother of children, the joys born of you, Lord, her husband. And she smiled on me with a smile of encouragement, as if to say, are you incapable of doing what these men and women have done? Do you think them capable of achieving this by their own resources and not by the Lord their God? Their Lord God gave, the, gave me to them. Why are you relying on yourself only to find yourself unreliable? Cast yourself upon him. Do not be afraid. He will not withdraw himself so that you fall. Make the leap without anxiety. He will catch you, and I heal, heal you. Okay, thank you. So, um, Augustine's train as a rhetorician. This is obviously full of metaphors. And as I have here on the screen, um, we see that he's talking about something appearing. So he says, continence is appearing. Chadwick says lady continence, but that actually is not in the Latin. Um, but there is personification, obviously, of the virtue of continence. What he means by continence is chastity, which classically is a subspecies of moderation. And he also says that it's by God's power, okay, that he's, he's able to, he will be able to achieve chastity. So we're dealing here with virtue ethics, obviously, because he's talking about um, the virtue of acting in a certain way, right, acting chastely. So we need to move right away into philosophy to try to get some kind of a grasp on what he means. And I am going to make the argument that what's going on here is that we are seeing him use a particular moral psychology that he developed from Platonism and Stoicism together. So he's taking from Platonism the idea that we are motivated to do actions, good actions in this case, because we love something intelligible in the action. So in this case, if it's a virtuous action, it's the intelligible beauty of the kalan, 
in Greek or the, the Onestum in Latin. So virtue or goodness has a certain intelligible beauty and this motivates us. It's an object of choice for humans. Okay? There's another aspect to Augustine's theory of action, which is if he were talking about um, attraction to sensible objects, he would be relying on love of sensible objects as described by the Stoics. Okay, but we don't really need to go into that for this passage. And then the second question is, how are we motivated to perform an action? And for that, he is using here in this passage the Stoic epistemology, which talked about a certain type of impression okay, and ascent, which is supposed to follow it. All right, so, so we'll get into the details of that as we go. So what I want to do then is turn your attention to the other text I handed out, because in this other text, the replies to Simplicianus, which was written a year before he started the Confessions. We have a description of this moral psychology, but it's not in metaphorical terminology, or at least not so much. So it's very useful to use as a gloss on what's going on in the Confessions. Um, so. Yes, yeah, we are commanded. We are commanded by Scripture to believe so that we may receive the Holy Spirit and become able to do good works by love. But who can believe unless he is touched by some calling, by some testimony born to the truth? Who has it in his power that his mind may be touched by the kind of impression by which his will may be moved toward belief? And who can welcome in his mind something which does not give him delight? Who has it in his power to ensure either that something that can delight him will turn up, or that he will be delighted when it turns up. Therefore, if those things delight us which serve our advancement towards God, that is, inspired and bestowed by the grace of God, he grants to us from his largesse our voluntary self-command, i.e. assent. Okay, thank you. So Augustine is giving here a very concise argument for the necessity of what came to be called prevenient grace. If you see that term at the bottom of the screen. Okay, so in terms of the history of Christian theology, two important markers would be the Second Council of Orange, which was in 529, origins in southern France, and then the Council of Trent at the time of the Protestant Reformation, both of which asserted that prevenient grace, quote-unquote, is necessary for humans to be healed of original sin and to attain virtue and to be happy, ultimately. Okay, so the origin of this notion that humans need absolutely prevenient grace is Augustine, at least um, the argument for it. Okay, so Augustine will say he got it from the Bible, right, that it's in Paul, right, but in terms of someone giving an argument for why it's necessary, Augustine is really the first figure to do so. So in this passage from Replies to Simplicianus, there's a couple of things that are noticeable that should remind us of the Confessions passage. Okay, so he's talking about being able to do good works, right, and he's talking about being motivated by love to do good works. In other words, being motivated to do virtuous actions or good actions from an interior desire, rather than from a threat. For example, if someone threatens me externally, I might do it from fear, right? But I'm not, I'm not really motivated internally. I'm just trying to avoid being beaten or whatever, right? Or put in jail. <laughs> um, so to be motivated internally, you have to love the object, right? So he is talking about the problem that we're supposed to believe certain things, Right? in order to be able to act the right way, but um, to believe that and assent to whatever it is, I have to see the actions as 
connected to me getting something that I love. Right? Okay, so he goes into the epistemology in the second sentence. Who can believe unless he is touched by some calling, by some testimony born to the truth? Who has it in his power that his mind may be touched by the kind of impression by which his will may be moved toward belief? All right, so now I'm going to explain the Stoic epistemology of this is how we come to do something. So for the Stoics, um, all cognition begins from an impression. So even if I'm just looking around the room, data is entering through my sen senses, but I'm forming an impression of, of the things outside of myself, okay, sensory impression. Now, because I'm human, my impressions are rational. If I were an animal, I would have only non-rational impressions. In humans, impressions are accompanied by what they call sayables, right, which are lecta in the Greek or dikibilia for Augustine. They're mental sentences, essentially. So I process my surroundings, I interpret my surroundings continuously because I'm rational. Okay? So even my sensory experience of the world, I'm saying to myself, that's a lamp, that's a couch, I'm in a room, I'm, people are at a distance from me, etc. Okay. Now, um, there are also two types of impressions. So I could have a purely epistemic impression. The ones that I was just giving you are examples of purely epistemic. Okay. But there's another type called action-inducing or action-suggesting impressions. And in order for me to be having an action-suggesting impression, I have to be perceiving something as having attractive qualities, qualities that are good for me somehow. Okay? So if I see an object as a type of object I love, it will trigger an action-suggesting impression, which will say to me not only that is pizza, but get the pizza, okay? the imperative mood. Now, um, impressions for the Stoics also are particularly associated with dubitative mental sentences. Okay, so they have a list of all the different types of mental sentences that humans naturally experience when they're processing their surroundings. And one of them is dubitative. Okay, so the idea of an impression is that it's the way something strikes me initially, but I'm not committed to it being the case. Okay. So it's a dubitative. So I'm thinking a proposition, I'm entertaining a proposition, the proposition is occurring to me, but I have not affirmed whatever that proposition is. So um, the way this is represented in Stoic authors, it's often illustrated, for example, like in Seneca or in Perseus, okay, who write in a literary way, but they have a Stoic moral psychology that they're using. They will represent the person as thinking questions, like, should I get up now? Should I eat the pizza? Okay. Saying, in other words, my mind is thinking, there's pizza, it's the kind of thing that's good for me, but I haven't yet decided to actually take action. The imperative is also associated with this type of impression, because I'm thinking, it seems like the kind of thing I should do, do it. Okay, but again, that's prior to assent. Okay, so, um, assent is the thing that is voluntary, that I do in response to impressions. I do not cause impressions in myself. That's impossible. All impressions are passively received, but I respond to them by saying yes or no. Okay, by affirming the proposition as true, and saying yes, I should do it, do it, okay? And then if I say that, that will trigger the will to do the action, the current impulse to do the action, 
Okay. Is this clear? Does anyone want to jump in with a question anytime? It's a small group. We can we can handle that if, if we want to do it that way. Okay. All right. So if we come back to this text, we can see. Okay, he's talking about the mind being touched. Now, this is terminology that Seneca uses, for example, and Cicero used to talk about an impression striking the mind when they're using Stoic epistemology. The mind is touched by impression. The word impression is visum in the Latin. That's how Cicero translates fantasia from the Greek. And Augustine's using the word visum here. Okay. And literally what that is in Latin is a thing seen, something seen, or something that appears to you. Okay. So we're starting to see the links back to the Confessions passage. Right? So who has in his power that his mind might be touched by an impression? Okay, in other words, all impressions are passively received, just as I said, this is a stoic idea. And who has it in his power that his mind will be touched by the kind of impression by which his will may be moved? Okay, so he's talking about an action suggesting impression and not the purely epistemic impression, okay? And he's talking here about the idea of conversion. So he's talking about belief or faith. But the idea of faith or belief here is it's what, what's called in biblical terminology living faith as opposed to dead faith. Okay, so living faith for Augustine is a whole lifestyle. So if I believe, um, for example, that Christianity is true, which is the context here, if I were to assent to that, I would be assenting to a whole set of actions. And I would be then refusing to do a whole contradictory set of actions that are ruled out by the Christian way of life. So it's an action-inducing impression that you need in order to convert to Christianity for Augustine. All right, now, the, the next thing he says is, who can welcome in his mind something which does not give him delight? Okay, he's now expanding on the notion of the action-inducing impression. And he's using that platonic element that I mentioned earlier. Okay, so in order for me to be converted to Christianity, I have to have an action-inducing impression of the Christian way of life. Okay, but that's not possible unless I see it as something lovable. If I see it as something lovable, I will experience a psychic delight in entertaining the idea of going after it. This is platonic. So especially as Plotinian. Okay, so Plato in the symposium, he, that's where he gives his account of Eros. How many people are familiar with the symposium? A couple, a few people. Okay. So um, in Plotinus, you have that same theory of Eros essentially, but he emphasizes that at the approach of the beloved, the beloved object, the mind experiences a shock of delight. Okay, so what this is is anticipated delight at the idea of possessing the object. Okay. So at the idea of possessing this virtuous way of life, which is what Christianity is for Augustine, the mind should experience delight. But he's now saying in the next sentence, who has it in his power to ensure either that something that can delight him will turn up or that he will be delighted when it turns up. Okay, so he's pointing to a twofold problem. One issue is, I need to be presented with an example or paradigm of virtue or of the Christian life that appears lovable to me, okay, that's delightful. So that's kind of a problem of circumstance, time and place, being in the right place at the right time. If, if all the people that are virtuous that I encounter are mean or self-righteous or boring, I'm never going to want to love that lifestyle. I'm never going to be attracted to it. So 
it has to be, I have to be in the presence of people who really can show me the delightfulness of it, okay? And then secondly, I have to be delighted by it even when that turns up, okay? Now, the problem he's referring to here is a deeper problem because I could be in touch with, for example, Martin Luther King. All right, when I was coming in downstairs, they had, they had all those photos of Martin Luther King with children, right? But if I'm racist, Okay, if we go back to the 1960s, I could be in his presence and I could be completely repulsed by him, even though what he's saying is true and beautiful and good, okay? and even though he's exemplifying the idea of justice. Why can that happen? Because of my habituation. So, I've logged myself out of here by accident, but I'll log yeah. in <laughs> later. Um, the issue is habituation. So Augustine, also like the Stoics, thought that our perception can be determined by our habits. So if I'm habitually racist, I grew up with racists, I imitated the behaviors of racists, I attended lynchings, etc. I perceive things in line with my habits. So when I see someone who's contradicting racism, my immediate reaction is, that's repulsive, that's not lovable, okay? So, now the problem is very serious, okay? Because I could be around a lot of great people, but if I am poorly habituated, there's no way for me to bootstrap myself out of having a faulty or incorrect impression of the goodness that's around me. Everyone see the problem? Okay. So this is, you could say, kind of the classic problem of ancient ethics. Because if you think about Plato's Republic, you were talking about Plato, I think, before we started. <laughs> um, does anyone remember in Plato's Republic when Socrates is talking about setting up the ideal city? I think it's in book five, maybe, under five. He says, um, what will we have to do to actually get this city off the ground given the current situation that we have in Athens, right? And he says, we would have to take all the children over the age of 10, put them outside of the city, and all the adults over the age of 10 outside of the city, and just keep the ones under the age of 10 with a few wise people in the city. Because habituation is so strong, is the implication, that if we don't start very young and habituate children perfectly, we will never be able to get to virtuous people, okay? So Augustine's basically making the same point, that if I already have bad habits, I am not going to be able to be persuaded to see things differently and just change my lifestyle, right? So, he's trying to provide an alternative way that we can have people changing their attitudes apart from just starting with people under the age of 10, which is obviously not a practical possibility. Augustine is also trying to account for the fact that there are people who seem to turn on a dime and change, right? So people who are poorly habituated, like himself, okay, and they change their life. So naturally speaking, this should not be possible because people see things according to the way they are. If I'm a racist, I'm not suddenly gonna wake up and say, oh yeah, today it seems to me that Martin Luther King is great, but yesterday I thought he was repulsive, right? So, but, that seems to happen occasionally. Okay, so then we have to give some kind of an explanation for why that happens, right? So it's desirable in terms of a theory of ethics because you want some way to talk about change being possible without just starting over from scratch in a city. And then secondly, you have this empirical problem that there seem to be people who undergo shifts, <coughs> radical shifts in how they see things. 
Okay, so then he tells us the answer in the next sentence here, replies to Simplicianus. Therefore, if those things delight us which serve our advancement towards God, that is inspired and bestowed by the grace of God. He grants to us from his largesse our voluntary self-command. Okay, so what he's actually arguing here is that God has to give people an action-inducing impression of virtue in order for them to have a moral conversion. And a conversion to Christianity for Augustine and a moral conversion are really... Um, tied up essentially together, okay, because he thinks that all pagan virtue is not motivated properly, it's aiming at glory, it's aiming at fear of punishment, it's aiming at fear of people thinking badly of you, whatever. So to have the right intention and truly love virtue, you have to love the standard of virtue, the standard of virtue subsists in God, the eternal law. So. Um, to be Christian is to be, to be completely virtuous, basically for us that are identical. Um, and he's saying, if someone were to radically change their, their perception of virtue and therefore change their behaviors and become motivated differently, that would only be by supernatural intervention. Because nature is entropic. So if I have a bad habit, I'm just going to perceive things in accord with my bad habit and keep choosing the same way and get more and more hardened in my bad habit. So God has to give us this type of impression by which our will can be moved. And then he says, the last thing he says is God gives us our voluntary self-command. This is how it's translated here, but um, what it actually says in the, in the text is nutus voluntatis. So the actual choice itself, the assent, okay? I have the impression, but then I have to decide, I have to say yes to the impression, I have to assent. And he's saying that also has to be given by God in this passage. Okay. So if we come back then to confessions, I'm going to argue that this is an illustration of this process. And that he thinks that that's the best way to explain what he experienced in his life when he was about 30 years old. So if we go back to paragraph 27, okay, we can see, he's saying, there appears the dignified and chaste consonants, okay? So, Oneste Blandiens is the next thing that he says, right? She was um, cheerful without coquetry is how it's translated by Chadwick, but the idea is um, Oneste is related to the word Onestum, right? Which is the Latin for Tokalon, the Greek, the, the beauty of, the aesthetic appeal of moral purity, right? So, Confidence, the beauty of the virtue was appearing to me. I saw that confidence as beautiful. Now, this is very pivotal because in the confessions, he already knew about people who were living chastity and he admired them. So, for example, he says in book six that he admired Ambrose because Ambrose was living this single life of dedication to God and. Um, he was living the intellectual type of monastic existence that Augustine wanted to live with his friends. But Augustine says, but I thought I would be miserable if I tried to live like him because I had this sexual habit. He was like a sexual addict, basically. So he, had, he knew epistemically, as a purely epistemic impression, right, that there, it's possible to live that way. Some people do it, and it's really admirable for them. But he didn't think it was good for him. He didn't see it as something that he could be attracted to or that 
was lovable for him. So what's happening here is all of a sudden he's seeing this as very attractive, right? And this is the point of the enticing um, personification of continence. He's seeing it now as something that's very um, attractive. So she's telling him to come forward, right? Um, she's she's encouraging him. So she's suggesting, in other words, that he that he try to live this way. And then blah blah blah. Numerous examples. We're going to skip over that part. Um, he talks here about delight, right? So he's, he, she's delightful looking, right? And then he mentions joy later in the passage. So this is that platonic element of the, at the approach of the beloved, you experience psychic delight. And then she starts talking to him, personified, right? And she's speaking to him in these interior senses. So this is all going on inside of his mind, right? This is a, an impression that he's undergoing. And, but he's having these mental sentences and they are put in question form, so they're like dubitative, right? Um, are you really incapable of doing what these other men and women have done? Are you capable of living this kind of life? Why are you relying on yourself, right? And then we see imperatives at the end of 27, cast yourself on him, do not be afraid, make the leap, right? So if you recall, the stoic action-inducing impression had dubitatives and imperatives, right? So I'm arguing that that's a case of this. He's just putting it all in metaphorical language. So I would argue this is the first grace, and this is what came to be called prevenient grace in the history of theology, okay? So Augustine, because he's using the Stoic epistemology and people cannot give themselves impressions, impressions are passively received, um, the first grace, is an impression, and impressions always come before decision. So therefore, prevenient, coming before the moment of decision. God has to give you this, this action-inducing impression. Now, um, the next thing that we see is that he's too weak to actually decide or assent to this attractive impression that he has. So, in paragraph 20, well, at the end of 27, okay, so the next thing that follows, we see that he's divided. So he describes this, this struggle of myself against myself. Right? Now, that is a reference back to paragraph 26. So if we go back to 26, we will see that he is um, talking there about contradictory impressions, action-inducing impressions that are arising from his memory. So his habit and his memory are reminding him of actions, that, the actions he's done in the past that contradict the virtue of chastity. And they are presenting themselves as attractive, right? So, and they are also speaking to him, right, in this um, mental language, asking questions. Are you getting rid of us? Okay, so it's dubitation, it's doubting. Should I, should I really go after continents or should I go after... Um, the lifestyle I've been living before. And he says that they're suggesting actions, right? This and that. He says these are actions with our like filthy actions. Um, the word suggesting for Augustine is actually a technical term for an action inducing impression. Uh, the word suggestio. So like I did a, I did a scan of uh, all the places in his corpus where he used the word suggestio. 
And repeatedly in his sermons especially, you see him using the word suggestio for a visum, <coughs> uh, um, a fantasia romantique, an action-inducing impression. Okay, so it's, um, if I have my book here, I'd give you all the examples, but <laughs> trust me. So this is actually a technical term when he's saying suggesting, suggesting they were suggesting actions. Um, so he now has weakness of will, that's what we call it in philosophy, but for Augustine, as for Seneca and the Stoics, weakness of will is um, diachronic. So it's not synchronic war of different parts of yourself, as in like some readings of Platonism, where you have the rational part versus the appetitive part at the same time warring. Instead, you have diachronic. So the whole self is flipping back and forth, kind of like that scene from um, Lord of the Rings when Gollum, you know, Gollum switching back and forth, when he can't decide whether to stay with serving the hobbits or to go against them to get the precious. Um, you see him like physically flipping back and forth like this. And that's what weakness of will is like in Stoicism and also in Augustine, because your mind sees the attractiveness of one course of action, but then you have a habit that dredges up from your memory the attractiveness of an alternate course of action that's incompatible. So you, you're unsure what to do, and then you can't assent, okay, because you have conflicting action-inducing impressions. So this is the reason why, in the replies of Simplicianus, he said, God also has to give us the assent. He can't just give us the impression, because if we already have bad habits, we won't be able to assent, even if he gives us this first impression. Okay. So, we see that the next thing that happens in paragraph 28 is that he basically grants that he cannot assent. Paragraph 28, from a hidden depth. It's the left-hand column. From a hidden depth, a profound self-examination has dredged up a heap of all my misery and set it in the sight of my heart. That precipitated a vast storm bearing a massive downpour of tears. To pour it all out with the accompanying groans, I got up from beside Olypius. Solitude seemed to me more appropriate for the business of weeping. And I moved further away to ensure that even his presence put no inhibition upon me. He sensed that this was my condition at that moment. I think I may have said something which made it clear that the sound of my voice was already choking with tears. So I stood up while in profound astonishment, he remained where we were sitting. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Rivers streamed from my eyes, a sacrifice acceptable to you. And though not in these words, yet in this sense, I repeatedly said to you, How long, O Lord, how long, Lord, will you be angry to the uttermost? Do not be mindful of our old iniquities. For I felt my past to have a grip on me. It uttered wretched cries, How long, how long is it to be? Tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not an end to my impure life in this very hour? Okay, thank you. So... This is called, this is actually something he describes also in his sermons when he is describing the action of grace on the mind. Um, after you receive the initial grace, which is the impression, um, you have to perform an act that he calls yielding an invocation. 
in order to then get the second grace from God, which is the God gives you the assent, okay, the decision. So um, it's not in technical terminology here, but he does in the sermons describe it in a little bit more technical terminology. So he talks about yielding and invoking. So you have to um, basically grant that you are a loser <laughs> and that you're not strong enough to assent even though you see the attractiveness of a better way of life, you're too weak to say yes and decide to do it. And you're stuck in this back and forth limbo. And if you grant that and then ask God to help you, which he calls invocation, okay, you invoke God and ask him to like, do something to solve your situation. This will provoke God to give you a second grace of assent. And Augustine actually says in the sermon that is a necessary condition for God giving you the grace of assent. So he says, God will not grant that grace unless you yield. Okay. So then in 29, he describes God giving him the assent because he has yielded and invoked God in paragraph 28. So now we need to read 29. Can I call on you in the background? Sure. Thank you. As I was saying this and weeping in the bitter agony of my heart, suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if as if it might be a boy or a girl, I do not know which, saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. At once my continence changed, and I began to think intently whether there might be some sort of children's game in which such a chant is used. But I could not remember having heard of one. I checked the flood of tears and stood up. I interpreted it solely as as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. For I had heard how Antony happened to be happened to be present at the gospel reading and took it as an admonition addressed to himself when the words were read. Go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. By such an inspired utterance, he was immediately converted to you. So I hurried, hurried back to the place where Alypius was sitting. There I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put the Lord Jesus Christ, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Okay, thank you. So this is clearly uh, a moment of decision, and the moment of decision happens um, when he's reading this sentence from Romans. If you look at the sentence from Romans, you notice that it's all imperative mood. And this, was, um, this is a feature of action, action-inducing impressions, and then also like decision in Augustine. Like once you make a choice, um, or in making a choice, you are commanding yourself to carry out an action. So here it's commanding oneself not to do certain things, right? But to command yourself to omit something is still commanding an action, right? So um, that's significant. And 
in the reading of it, he is decided, right? So it's like, but it's the word of God that he's reading. So it's supposed to represent the fact that God can cause people to choose, right? So the choice is theirs, they're making a decision, but it's also caused by God. God is giving them the grace of the decision. One thing that's interesting is, um, I mean, the most famous line in this paragraph is pick up and read, pick up and read, tole lege. Does anyone know what, what that actually probably really means? It's usually translated as um, pick and read, pick and read, but the real Latin is tole lege. So lege, to read, that, that's a meaning that's a secondary meaning derived from to take. Right, so when you're reading, you are like picking the words, you're picking out the letters, picking out the words, and getting the meaning. So they, these are probably children singing a song that they um, had been taught at harvest time when they were helping the field. So it was take and pick, take and pick, take and pick when they're picking the crops. But he interprets it as take, it, take and read, and then he picks up the Bible. So just kind of an interesting piece of trivia there. Um, but anyway, this is a representation of the two, what I call the two grace model of conversion, and human freedom is exercised in between in this act of yielding and invoking God. And then he also wants to say the second grace acts with our free choice and not against our free choice because we've already basically asked God for help. So the second grace is not in conflict with human freedom, but is an aid to human freedom. So, but God is making us choose for Augustine. Okay. There's a very interesting um, later debate about the relationship between grace and free choice in humans. How many people are familiar with the Dea Zilius controversy at all? Okay, so this is, um, this is in the uh, 16th, 17th century. It's in response to the Reformation and the Council of Trent. There are many debates going on among theologians in Europe about the relationship between grace and human free choice. And um, ultimately, on the Catholic side, after the Council of Trent, the Jesuits and the Dominicans um, fought for years about the correct interpretation of Trent. And they were both sides were saying they were Augustinians, okay, but they were fighting. And um, Banyas, who is uh, the fam most famous representative of the Dominican side, was saying there are two graces in conversion. Okay, by the first grace. The first grace is sufficient only in the sense that if we don't rebel against it, it's sufficient for God giving us the second grace, and the second grace is a grace of consent. Okay? And that is exactly, basically what I guess I'm saying here. So it's quite interesting that Banyas was able to get that. Um, he doesn't give it as a gloss of the confessions. He just says, this is what we think. This is what, what we think, how grace and freedom work together. Um, and I don't even know, you know, we don't even know exactly what someone like Banyas would have read of the Confessions because they had Florilegia, they didn't necessarily sit down and read whole texts, right? He certainly does not quote Book of the Confessions anywhere in his writings. So it almost seems like a co coincidence that he, he hit on exactly the model that's laid out here. And he didn't know the Stoic epistemology behind it either, but he just sort of inferred it.